So the context of this passage that I just read to you, Joshua 10, 16 to 28, is that in chapter 9, the Gibeonites had come and deceitfully entered into a covenant with Israel, saying that they had come from a place far away, and the Israelites unwittingly, kind of naively, enter into this covenant with them, not seeking the Lord's counsel, but uh, leaning on their own understanding, and it comes back to haunt them. They realize that these guys actually live less than 10 miles away. Uh, The exact distance is debatable, but even 10 miles at most is not far. So these guys are basically their next door neighbors in terms of territories adjacent. Well, when the five kings mentioned in our passage today hear that the Gibeonites had entered into a covenant with Israel, they decide to go against Gibeon. And this might be to make an example against the Gibeonites. It might be to strike them swiftly so that they could deal with the Gibeonites alone and then deal with the Israelites. Whatever the strategy here, there's some kind of militaristic strategy about attacking the Gibeonites and making sure that none of the other towns or regions around follow suit with the Gibeonites and enter into covenant with Israel. Something like this seems to be what is their motivation. So they come against the Gibeonites and the Gibeonites call to Israel for help and Israel comes to the aid of the Gibeonites and so does Israel's God as we saw last week. God uh, throws the armies of the five kings into a panic and then God rains down large hailstones upon them such that the armies of these five kings are, are more or less decimated. These five kings themselves hide in a cave and of course what we read about tonight is the Israelites find them there and they're brought out to Joshua and he slaughters them. The conquest of Canaan is not exactly paradigmatic of Christ's exaltation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's not an exact one-to-one comparison where Jesus takes over this world and every knee bows and every tongue confesses in exactly the same way that the Israelites took over Canaan. After all, we His people don't physically fight to establish His reign. We don't go wipe out the Canaanites, as it were, and set up a new kingdom where Jesus is king instead of, you know, the five kings here. So it's not really one-to-one comparison. And neither do we take over gradually until the whole world is ours, in my estimation. It seems to me that the common kingdom is alive and well and as hostile as ever at Christ's return, according to the prophecies of Scripture. And we've been looking at Revelation and... Um, I've explained my perspective on those things at length, so I don't need to belabor that. In my view, Jesus returns not to an already subdued world, but actually rather to a world still very much at enmity with Him. And we see among the last things described to us in Revelation a great battle. However, the Scripture is quite clear at the same time that the kingdom of Christ does make progress and that its boundaries, if you will, are constantly and continually extended 
as we make disciples of all nations. Therefore, there is incremental ground to be gained, so to speak. Territory to take for Christ by way of evangelism and discipleship. We push back the powers of darkness in a sort of conquest akin to what the Israelites do in Canaan. So the conquest of Canaan is not exactly like Christ's takeover of this world where at some future point the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But neither is the conquest of Canaan entirely unlike the way that the kingdom of Christ grows and advances and eventually takes over. There are some parallels and similarities. Let's look at a couple of things that we see in tonight's passage, Joshua 10, 16-28, and really the next couple of chapters which all describe military victories in Canaan. Let's look at a couple of things we see in this section of Joshua about the Israelite conquest of Canaan, and then draw some application for the Christian commission to make disciples of all nations. So, first, I will point out God's faithfulness is demonstrated to do what He has promised. In the, in the conquering of these five kings, and in the next couple of chapters, we read about city after city and king after king falling. We're not, we're not going to read them, um, but you can go check it out yourself. Joshua, the rest of Joshua 10, Joshua 11, Joshua 12 summarizes it all. You can go read it yourself. God's faithfulness is demonstrated to do what He has promised as all of these kings fall before the people of Israel. We remember that way back God promised Abram to give Abram's descendants this land. And we're going to look at that a little more closely in a few minutes. But even more recently, among Joshua's, or pardon me, among Moses' last words are these in Joshua, or in Deuteronomy 33. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. So, what or who is the shield of their help and the sword of their triumph? It's the Lord. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, implicitly, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Israel is a people saved by the Lord. And Israel is a people for whom the Lord is a shield to them and the sword of their triumph. And Moses goes on to say, Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. And now, here is Yahweh, the shield of Israel and the sword of their triumph, putting down kings before them. And these five kings come fawning to Joshua. And Joshua himself, and he tells the generals of his people, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. They tread on their backs. 
exactly what God had said through Moses that he would be to the people and that he would do for the people. God is and does. He is faithful to do what he has promised. In Joshua chapter 1, if we rewind, Moses has spoken these words and then Moses dies. And in chapter 1, God tells Joshua so many times, be strong and courageous. It seems very likely, given the textual indicators, that Joshua was growing faint-hearted and weak-kneed and needed some encouragement. And God says to Joshua in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua is God's appointed man to lead these people into Canaan and to take over. So God has promised, not just to the nation generally, that they will take over, but He has appointed Joshua. You are going to lead these people. He has anointed Joshua for this task, as it were. You are going to do it. The way I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. You're going to be at the helm and you're going to be the human captain of the Lord's army. We know that God Himself is at the helm, but in terms of at the human level, Joshua is the guy. Joshua is the closest thing that Israel has to a a human general or a human king. Joshua is God's anointed man for this work. And God sees to it that Joshua is successful and Joshua is victorious with respect to the work that he has given him to do and the victory that he has promised him. God is faithful to do what he has promised. Here is, here are these five kings now. Joshua puts his feet on their necks and kills them. Here is God's man taking the victory that God has promised to give him. And that's symbolic of God's people as a whole gaining the victory that God has promised to give them. God is their shield and God is the sword of their triumph. He is faithful to do what He has promised. And God's power is demonstrated to do what He has promised. If we go back all the way to Genesis 15, which is hundreds of years earlier, God is speaking to Abram, who is at that time living in the land of Canaan. And the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 15, 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, they sh- you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We see the sovereignty of God, the power of God, so manifest in the fact that hundreds of years earlier that He can promise these things and then bring them to pass. Imagine if all your children moved to a foreign land. How would you possibly be able to predict what's going to happen to your posterity in 400 years? 
you would have no idea what's going to happen to your posterity in 400 years. What will, how they will fare in that foreign land, what will become of them, what decisions they will make, whether they'll stay there, whether they'll leave. But look at God telling Abram exactly what's going to happen. They're going to go to Egypt, be slaves there, but then I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them back here and I'm going to plant them here. Consider the sovereignty of God in purposing to do something, planning to do something, and then His actual ability to bring it about. It's staggering if you actually think about it. But more than that, Abram is an old man, and he has no children. And God promises him something concerning his offspring. Romans 4 tells us that at the time of Isaac's birth, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult Abram. The Bible says that his body was as good as dead. Romans chapter 4, verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It wasn't, it wasn't that Abram was one of those old guys that's still full of tons of life, tons of vitality, and that God took a real strong guy full of life and used natural means. No, the Bible tells us his body was as good as dead. Consider the power of God, not only to promise something concerning posterity and what will happen to them over hundreds of years, but to promise something concerning the posterity of someone who is so old that his body was as good as dead. Consider that. Consider, moreover, that when the people of Israel left Egypt in Exodus 13, Verses 17 and 18. That God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Look, if these guys were Spartans, God would have just led them up by the way of the Philistines. It was the most direct way. Because if they were Spartans and they saw war, they wouldn't back down from it. They wouldn't worry about it. They'd just fight like Spartans do. What this tells us is that these were not people of war. These were not men of war. These were guys who hadn't seen war in literally centuries. It's not just that they weren't people of war. It's that their fathers and their grandfathers were not people of war. They were slaves. They knew nothing about war. They were equipped for battle, presumably because they plundered the Egyptians of swords and shields and whatnot. But these were like, these were like kids playing dress-up that find their dad's swords and shields in the closet and walk around with them on. They have no idea how to use them. They're not psychologically ready for war, nor are they trained for war. This whole generation that comes up out of Egypt are not men of war, and they all, they all fall in the wilderness because they're so afraid of war that when they come to the cusp of Canaan, the report of the ten spies makes them shrink back 
and God was displeased with them, and they all dropped in the wilderness. The next generation that follows them are not men of war either. So here are these people who are not men of war. But look at the kings dropping before them. We've already seen Sihon and Og fall before them on the east of the Jordan. We've seen Jericho fall before them. Then this alliance of five kings. Now we're not talking about one city. We're talking about an alliance of five kings. The whole region is against them. And how does this passage before us end? It ends with God's appointed man putting his foot on their necks and killing them. It ends with God being a shield to His people and the sword of their triumph and being faithful to bring about what He has promised and having the sovereignty and the power to bring about what He has promised. Not only in that generation, but what He promised hundreds of years ago to Abram concerning His posterity. All of this is happening now because of God's mighty right arm against all natural ordinary causality. People who are not people of war do not march across the desert and then conquer cities filled with men of war. Old men don't have babies with old women. But look at what God does. Exactly what He promised. Exactly what He promised. He is faithful to do what He promised and He is powerful enough to do what he has purposed. Now remember, the conquest of Canaan is not exactly the same as Christ's ultimate exaltation over this world and ascendancy as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and taking over. But it's not utterly different either. Consider that we are in a conquest of sorts. God has said in a passage that is so key to the whole storyline of Scripture, Psalm 2, that He has set His King on Zion, His holy hill. He says to His Son, Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is God's Joshua. Jesus is God's appointed man to take victory over the kings of this earth. To displace them and to rule and reign where they once held sway. One day... The President of the United States, Prime Minister of Barbados, so on and so forth, will no longer be even the human heads of these nations. Jesus will have taken over everything in a very real, earthly, manifest, Sense. Jesus shall reign as we will sing at the end, where'er the song does its successive 
journeys run. Psalm 72 is what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of Solomon talking about God's king. It says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This psalm and other messianic psalms are all fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Listen here, Christ shall have dominion from sea to sea. If someone just came along and said to the United States of America, listen, your, your time is up. We want to be in charge now. We want to take over. It's no longer going to be the current order of things, but there's a new king. How do you think, how you think our American friends would feel about that kind of thing? Right? But, but listen here, one day, there will be a, a very real takeover, very much like that. And all of the guns in America ain't going to be able to stop it. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys wrong. And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, back to Psalm 2, against the Lord and against His anointed. We're going to resist this. We're going to fight. We're going to get an ally, allies. We're going to make allies of the kings in the surrounding cities. This coalition of kings. Right? Like our passage in Joshua 10. Hang on a second here. We see this impending takeover coming. Let us gather ourselves, set ourselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We see in Revelation, people's gathering themselves for war against Him who sits on the white horse in Revelation 19, whose name is Faithful and True. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he reiterates, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is going to be the ultimate exaltation of Jesus Christ. And there is a very real sense in which it's going to be, let me say, cataclysmic. And by that what I mean is, is instantaneous, pertaining to significant radical events surrounding Christ's return. There is a very real sense in which it's not going to happen gradually. And that's a way in which it's unlike the conquest of Canaan, which did happen gradually. 
Philippians 2. It says, At the name of Jesus, you know it, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen. Jesus is God's Joshua before whom He is going to put down all of the foes of God's people. He has spoken and He shall do it. He's faithful to do it. He's powerful enough to do it. It's going to happen. Bottom line. But even though there is going to be that for lack of a better term cataclysmic exaltation of Christ at the end it is also true that here and now we are going to see incremental growth of Christ's kingdom we are going to see the territory as it were of the kingdom of Christ expand obviously there are no physical borders of the kingdom of Christ so there is a sense in which I'm speaking in a figure of speech But we can recognize that it was just this tiny little place in the Middle East where there were believers at the time of Jesus' ascension. And just look on a map where the gospel has spread. Look at all that territory, as it were, taken for Christ Jesus since the ascension. Consider that Matthew 13 tells us that the growth of Christ's kingdom shall be like the growth of a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of Christ was this unsuspecting thing. When Jesus ascended, there was like dozens of believers, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. This little mustard seed, this little bit of leaven, but look how it has grown. The point that we are certainly talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of believers, depending on how inflated the statistics may be that we have available to us. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And isn't that what He's doing? Jesus is building His church. We are taking ground. The territory of the kingdom of Christ is expanding. The powers of darkness are being pushed back. It's happening right now as we speak. The gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners. That people are lost. That people are destitute. That there is no hope outside of Christ Jesus. But that God looked upon this situation. God looked upon this world in its lostness. And He loved the world in this way that He sent His Son into the world. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. He sent Jesus into the world to take our sins upon Himself on the cross of Calvary and bear the punishment that we deserve. He sent His Son into the world to live righteously in the place of people like us who have not lived righteously 
so that we could be credited with a righteous life and that we could be credited with a punishment-bearing death. This is the means by which God has loved the world, sent His Son in so that there would be good news. And as this gospel is preached, as we share this with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, as people go and translate this book into new languages, as people work behind the scenes in infrastructure, you realize missionaries need accountants and transportation and things like this. As the church works together to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, progress is made. Conquest is happening gradually, incrementally. And though we ought to expect that the whole earth will not be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covered the sea until the cataclysmic events surrounding the end occur. We will make some progress in the here and now. And one day, the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to put His foot on the necks of the kings who have gathered themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder. And He's going to slay those kings. As it says in Psalm 2, He's going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. This is what God has promised to do. And God is faithful to do what He has promised. And God has purposed to do this. And He is powerful to do what He has purposed to do. Does it seem unlikely? Doubt not the faithfulness nor the power of God. Lest you be like that first generation who didn't go in after the ten spies brought a bad report. Instead, hear what God said to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Don't grow faint. Be bold in standing with Christ and speaking up for Christ in evangelism. Be encouraged. Now we... We might lose some battles, but we're not going to lose the war. That God is going to put everything under Christ's feet. And that one day Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run. Even as Joshua said to his generals, the chiefs of the men of war, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. The unbelieving world is not going to get the victory against us. No weapon formed against you shall prevail. That doesn't mean they're not going to cut off your head or shoot you. But it does mean 
that's not the end, and that's actually not even the victory. And that ultimately speaking, Jesus wins. And we in Him. And that the whole earth, the Canaan, as it were, of our conquest, shall belong to Christ, God's anointed King. And in Him, His people. And we shall reign with Him. So believers, doubt not the faithfulness nor power of God. Let that lead you to be strong and courageous. Not to lose heart. And let it lead you to be bold in evangelism. Unbelievers, be warned. This is what it says in Psalm 2. Therefore, kings of the earth, be warned. Be wise. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If you are not in Christ, basically, basically what is happening is what you see happening in, in Joshua. Christ and His kingdom is expanding and, and growing and is bearing down upon you. And one day if you resist, it shall overrun you. If you find yourself on the wrong side of Christ, ultimately, then you shall perish in your way, as Psalm 2 says. So kiss the Son. Give Him the kiss of deference. Bow before Him. To quote the great theologian Darth Vader, resistance is futile, (laughs) said in, albeit a different context. But in all seriousness, resistance is futile when we think about the expanding kingdom of Christ. And the absolute certainty, the surety of his victory. Resistance is futile. So kiss the son. Give him the kiss of deference. Lest you perish in the way. For Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run.